0: Today's message is titled, Rails in the Fog, and you're going to understand what I mean by this. Flip to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be in chapter 29. We're going to reread the passage of Scripture that I read for you last week, and I'm going to also add a a verse to that for this message. Last week we were so blessed to have Joe share a a testimony. I gave just this abbreviated message as a follow-up to the one that was before that, and so this week I'm just going to just... You know, just ride on the coattails of that once again. And I want to expand on the passage from last week and just share this message with you. Uh, This picture, I think, says it all. Um, There are moments in life where we really don't know where we're headed. (laughs) We've experienced that, right? You don't need to be that old to understand that life gets foggy, right? There are seasons and moments in our personal and career lives where we're just like, I have not a clue what tomorrow is going to be like. And it is a dense fog. And in moments when it is foggy, what we need most is some sort of a track, something to guide us, to help us to know, even though I can't see five steps in front of me, I am on a sturdy path and I know there is a hand leading me. Have you ever driven in the fog? Have you ever driven at night up a mountain where there are no street lights and then all you can see is a high-beaming <laughs> light, person who wasn't smart enough or, or courteous enough to, to turn it off as they're approaching you, and when you can't see the road that's in front of you, I was trained to do something very key. Look at the line, bottom right. right? If there's high beams or fog, just as much as you can, find that line right there. Right? You can't see 50 feet in front, but you got 5 feet at least. Look there, right? And this message, Rails in the Fog, will springboard from Jeremiah 29 and hopefully communicate two very important truths that I hope to be the two rails in any foggy season of life. Jeremiah 29, we'll start from verse 8. The context, Israel, God's people, they're in captivity, exiled in Babylon, okay? And the voice of Jeremiah comes out contradictory to all of the other voices, to all of the other false prophets. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and I and, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you in to exile in these verses that we've been reading over the last few weeks the key phrase in all of that is this when God said I sent you if you miss this you miss everything, it's getting that first button wrong. It's believing that you are in a place of of dire straits, you are in a place that you do not want to be, and by believing that other people sent you there, you are here because of maybe sin, you are here because of evil folks, you are here because of your boss, you are here because of the failed efforts of parents, you are here because, and there's so many other places where you can say it is because of this circumstance these people that I'm in this season of hurt. And too often, we point the blame at other places. And in this passage, in this circumstance of being exiled in Babylon, and that's an unfavorable place to be if you are God's people. And what God is saying is you are here because I put you there. That my hand put you in Babylon and I want you to know that your time here will be long. And so while they were in exile in Babylon, all of these voices were coming out saying, You know what? Don't worry. It'll be short. God loves you that much. You know, before you know it, you're going to be back home. You're going to be back on your streets visiting the markets and the places that you've always been to. You'll be reunited with lost friends and family. Don't worry. You'll be back home. This is what the prophets were saying. This is what the dreams that were given to these false diviners. And they were just saying this to the people to soothe the heartache. And the lone voice of Jeremiah rises up in the midst of the dozens, if not hundreds, of other prophets. And he says, "Uh uh-uh. God put you here. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not the armies of Babylon. God sent you here because he's got this overarching plan that he wants to do amongst his people. And I want you to know that this time here in Babylon is not going to be short. This time of what you perceive to be suffering in your life, hardship, the wilderness, it's not going to be short. It's going to be 70 years. And when seven decades is done, then, then you'll be brought back home. And like I've mentioned in weeks past, when you tell a group of people that this exile, this captivity is going to last 70 years, that is not encouraging to the listeners. Right? I mean, uh, what it's saying is you're going to die here and it's going to be your grandchildren that will come back, right? Try telling any young child, you know, I'll give you this, but I'll give it to you in 70 years, you know? I mean, let me know how, how encouraging that is for that person. It just does not sit well. And so when Jeremiah is telling a generation of people, all of those other people that are saying you'll be back before you know it, they're wrong, God put you here, it's going to be seven decades, I can guarantee you that was not a welcomed message and voice. It was not. And as the voice of Jeremiah goes out saying 70 years time, this will happen, God is painting this larger picture for His people. I shared this picture with you last week, didn't I? Again, I always censor this picture when I do it, right? I don't want to stumble you you ladies, okay? I know you wish that black square was gone, but, uh, okay? Google it on your own if you want. <laughs> but in this great artistic portrayal of the creation of Adam, I, I, like I mentioned last week, the zooming into these pixels, right? And the artist sees the entire canvas and realizes, this is where I'm going to put God. This is where I'm going to put this enveloping presence in the angels. And I'm going to see Adam over here. And I'm going to surround it. The artist sees this entire frame, this entire picture, and he puts colors. And he starts to map it out, whether you go light to dark. We had an art night a few weeks ago, right? And we learned that from Julia, right? How to layer in colors. And this is what the artist is doing, layering it in, letting certain portions dry out, letting the focal point come here so that it doesn't go other places. And this is what an artist does. And God is an artist in our lives. And when He looks at our lives, He sees it in its totality. From beginning when we were born to the last day when we give up our last breath. God sees that picture. And it is this beautiful picture of what we look like in life. But our vantage point is in the moment. And I've mentioned this to you, right? That too often we fixate on a group of pixels. We say, I don't like this season, it's dark, it's cold, it's lonely. And that season can last a day, a week, a month, or it can last 70 years. The artist had this picture in mind, but to the person living in the moment, we complain about, you know what, I don't like that army green, that just, you know, it's boring, it's bland. You need to have all of that grouped together where then you begin to see what God sees. And I've told you this before, pan out. Pan out. When we're in the moment and stuck in disappointment as Israel must have been, Jeremiah brings the voice to say, pan out. I want you to know that 70 years is what God has in store for us. And it's all part of a plan for welfare and for future. And I need you to begin to see it as such. Know that this suffering and loneliness and exile that you are experiencing is not for your detriment. God is writing a story, not just in your life, but in your children's lives, in your grandchildren's lives. And God's perspective is not just the 70, 80, 90 years that we have on earth. God's perspective goes generationally, historically, by epics and eras. He'll judge history based on Adam to the last point of revelation. That's God's vantage point. And when we train ourselves to look at our lives in that way, we take things in stride better. We're able to to move through the different seasons. And this is what I hope to communicate through this message. In our family, I'm I'm a little bit more of the disciplinarian. Um, I play with the kids a lot, of course. But when it comes to like keeping them in line, the kids are a lot more afraid of me, right? Maybe it's because I got a, a louder voice than Jenny does or whatever. I, I mean, I, of course, I try not to yell at the kids and that's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm more of the disciplinarian. And so when they need to be like held in line, like I, I, I try to be clear, I should only have to say it once. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you repeat yourself, you're actually saying it more than once, you know, like, but, you know, you, you, you reinforce that. And so there are different seasons, and for us parents, I mean, we know there's so many different moments where we want to discipline our kids. Well, I mean, I try to parent not as a firefighter. Like, I don't want to just put out fires in their lives and say, you know what, I'm just going to manage the day. And I try to parent with the end in mind, right? And so we're trying to, to speak words that may be very hard to hear and they're disciplinary in tone and we speak that because we actually want to build character values and truth we want to help our children not to live in the moment and to look bigger picture and of course how we do that begins to be more complicated and detailed as they get older and the younger they are we're a little bit more simplistic in that but nonetheless we try to discipline them from a a younger age and children are very short-sighted and disciplined, aren't they? I mean, weren't we when our parents disciplined us, right? Uh, As we're younger, it's like you can't take that. It's like in the moment, I mean, one moment, one day my boys will say to me, Dad, you're the best dad in the world. I love you to infinity and and a billion, right? And the next day they'll say, you know, that they don't like me because I said something to them. They're just that in the moment. That's what it means for them, that they like it when I speak nicely to them and when I take something away or I discipline them it's uncomfortable and they don't like it and I remember one day like I was in this cleaning mode I don't know if you do this like I have an extra small quart of paint that's the same color of paint that are on the walls right and so every year or so you know the the seats rub up against the wall the table does that and get all of these markings so I like to touch up the walls every year or, or two And uh, it makes a big difference. Do it if you can, right? It really does. If you go to like Home Depot, they'll even color match if you don't know the color code. It's amazing, right? Just do it. That's a plug for Home Depot. I don't work for them. I'll send them an invoice later. Uh, But one day, (laughs) this was the last time I did it. It was less than a year ago. I was touching (laughs) up the walls, and it was quite comical. And I was in part of the, the, the house where it goes up the stairs, I began to see some writing on the wall, and this is what it said. <laughs> All over the stairwell, like every five feet, it said, Bad Dad, right? <laughs> I, I got to admit, the first time I saw it, like the first one that I saw, it was comical. And I had to erase with paint about 20 of these things all over the house. And I was amazed where he wrote all of these things. Bad dad, bad dad, bad dad. And by the fifth time, it started to sting a little bit. Like I was, I was hurt by this. And I was like, this kid doesn't know, right? I was trying to do this, for the kid's good. And all of a sudden, he t- misunderstood it. But isn't this what it's like? Because any parent will tell you, they discipline not to tear down. They do it to build up. And what I was trying to do for the child's good, he was interpreting as bad. Do I have to parallel that to our lives? If God is our Heavenly Father, and He chastens us or disciplines us, leads us to places, and there are moments where we're like, God, I love you. Thank you for this lollipop and popsicle and ice cream. Thank you for answering my prayers. Thank you for picking me up early and taking me to this place. And when the moment and the season is all happy and emotionally high, we're like, God, you're the best God in the world. Thank you for that. And we're singing our, our praise songs a little bit louder. We feel like we're a little bit more faithful in our Christian service because God is good. But there are moments in our lives where that is not the case. We're in Babylon. Everything that we have prayed apparently is to this deaf ear up in heaven. And there are seasons in life where we seriously question if this was for our good. Prayers dry up. Praise tends to wither. And we're now in this moment Even if we don't vocalize it, there's something inside. Maybe believes that, God, this isn't good. If I was living in the time here of captivity, I most likely would have said that. I would have gravitated to all the false prophets. Every other voice that says, you know what, don't worry. God, it's good. You'll be back next month. (laughs) That's the dream. I got a dream. You will be back soon before you know it. That's the voice I want to hear, not Jeremiah's. Not that my grandkids are going back. I want to know that I'm going back, that I'll be back in my home. Jeremiah's voice, build a house here in Babylon, plant a garden here, pray for the Babylonians. That's the voice I don't want to hear. It's like praying for the boss I don't like. Praying for the moment of hardship that I'm in to be longer than, it, than I want it to be. And that's precisely what Jeremiah's voice is saying. And so in the course of this message, I I, want to give you two truths. And these truths, I hope to be the tracks, the rails, that the train of your life sits upon, and whether the sun is crisp in the air, or whether you can't see the trees, 15 feet beyond. I want these two truths to be laid down in your life, because when they are, it offers us a sense of peace, and it keeps us sane when we want to lose it. And the first is that God is sovereign. Sovereign is a theological way to say, God's got it together. Like, He's not working haphazardly. He's not just trying to fix it in the moment. Like, oh man, I can't believe I let that happen to you. Sorry. (laughs) Oops. That's not how God operates. Like, God operates from a plan. He sees the end in mind. He sees that entire landscape, the canvas, and He says, you know what, I want some black over there. I want to set the stage. I want all eyes to be right here in this season. And in order to do that, in order for there to be true glory and joy to the level that I wanted here in this moment, in this little space, I'm gonna dull out over here. It's gonna be a blur. You're not gonna know what happened. And this is how God sets the scene in the seasons of our lives. For Israel, is saying, God's going to bring you back. It's going to be 70 years. And I want you to know when God looks at you, he sees his people, capital P, not just this one generation. That's God's vantage point. God is sovereign. And the extra verse that I want to tack on from what I read last week and what I reread this today is in chapter 30, verse 24. When Jeremiah is continuing in the prophecy, and he says the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back. Because there was some stuff that God was dealing with. There was rebellion amongst His people, amongst the leaders, and amongst different prophets and kings. And God was going to sift a lot of that out. He was dealing with that. And the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. And in the latter days, you will understand this. Let me highlight something. right? The intent of his heart. You're not going to understand it now. You're going to be writing Bad Dad all over the stairwell. The intent of what he's doing to you, you're not going to get it. But in Days, times, in years, times, in latter days, when you will look back at this season that you hated absolutely to your core, to your gut, you will know what God was doing. You're not going to understand it now. All you can do is get through it. But there will be a day. It might come later than you want it, but there will be a day where the light bulb will turn on. And you're going to say, ah. That was a long 70 years, but God, I get it. I I buried my dad and my mom in this land. My children suffered in slavery. My grandchildren are free. God, I, I see that you're faithful. I didn't understand it for those decades, but now I know that you have a bigger vantage point in history and you're doing something beyond my own life. I get it. I get it. But for people who are, are just going into their careers, starting their families, we're just in the moment. We're just trying to, to grab everything and we just want this <laughs> trajectory. This is how we want our life to be. Right? Like That's it. Just st- it might go like this, but this is what I want. right? Just move upward. Promotion. More! And in those dips, we realize that God is writing a very different type of story. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, people call it the chapter of love because it says there are three things that will remain, that these things are eternal, man. Faith, hope, The greatest of these three, the Apostle Paul says, is love. But I've said this to you before, and I'll say second only to love is perseverance in the Christian life. I see so much in Scripture about what it means to be persevering, to have faith in Scripture all of the people of God, Old Testament and New, what they endured and the things that they had to see and accept. Perseverance is second only to love, of Christian character and values and virtue. And I was thinking like faith and hope, like faith. Hebrews 11, that's the chapter of faith, isn't it? There's a definition of faith for us. Now faith is confidence, in what we hope for, and assurance in what we do not see. And for the Israelites in Babylon, I mean, no matter what Jeremiah is piping up, man, no matter what he's saying, I can't see it. It's too far. Like seven days, maybe. Seven weeks, ah, months, ah, man. Seven years? You're pushing it. Seven decades. From childhood to senior citizen status. Seven decades. That's how long you got to wait. Like, that's how long you got to hope. And that's like a tunnel where there's no light there right now. It's like, I don't see it, God. And what faith is, I got an assurance that what Jeremiah is saying to me right now, even though I can't see it, I know it's there. That's faith. What's hope? Wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. Be strong and take heart and wait. For the Lord. This waiting, like waiting. Another psalm. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. In, in what? In His Word. I put my hope. Goes on. Not only so, the Apostle Paul says, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Paul is saying, hope is not this random occurrence in our lives. If you want to have hope, there's a sequence involved. And you can't jump the line on this one. If if you want to be a person known who is just a hopeful person, who knows what it means to hope in life, to hope in the Lord, uh, I'm sorry to say, but there's going to be a starting point to that. And it's got to be suffering. There's got to be a Babylon, a wilderness. There's got to be a Nebuchadnezzar, an iron fist, if you want to know what it means to hope. Because suffering produces perseverance, and that produces something more intangible in our lives, something intrinsic, internal, something that is beyond circumstance and people. And it says, Ah, I now know what it means to not live by my surroundings, to not just react to life, but to initiate faith. To hope in something that is beyond me. To see something that is truly bigger than me. And it starts when I understand that suffering is a big part of that. And so the first rail is this. like That first rail is like God, He just knows. Like When you believe and are just seriously questioned, God, like, man, couldn't you have done something about this? just in your gut god you're in control like i don't get it i don't like it and i want this to be over but my last confession will be you're in control like that needs to get there like there life's not random Fate is not in charge. God is. That's number one. The second rail is God is good. God is good. You know, when we, when people go through extreme hardship in life, when they experience great tragedy and loss, if they believe in God, I've come to see and even personally experience that there are two main questions that we answer in those seasons of life. Number one, God, could you have stopped this? That's interfacing with His power, His control. The second is, God, if you could have and didn't, do you care? Like somehow those questions surface in seasons of Babylon. Like, if I was living there in that moment, the first thing is, God, like, can't you do something? Can't you deliver your people? We're worshiping, we're praying, we're kneeling on our living rooms right now, and we're asking you to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar and to bring us back home. You can do it. You parted the Red Sea. You killed Pharaoh. You've done all of these things. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. The blind will see. And we're worshiping and praying and believing. Now, God, do something. Can you? And if we come to terms that God could have done something, but He didn't, then we question why He didn't. Do you care about me? Do you not see me? Have you turned your face? What did I do wrong? Why do you hate me? And we begin now to doubt His goodness. God, you could have done something. You could have kept that person alive. You could have kept me out of that season of loss. You could have brought me back home. You could have gave me that. And disappointment sets in. God, I just don't know this, if this is going to work out. And we question His care and concern for our lives. And that's the second rail. It's like, God, you are powerful. That is like the firm rail. That is like the right rail, man. That'll take you across any sharp curve in life, right? It is going and you're going fast, but this rail is sturdy. God's power is. it will take you there. He'll corner that. But the other rail is believing that God deeply cares, that He will not turn a deaf ear, and that He hears and sees all things. His silence is intentional. His distance, it means something. For Israel, it meant something. When He says, I'm hands-off for 70 years, it's not really hands-off. Like, I'm doing something. I'm teaching my king something. I'm teaching my prophets something. I'm going to teach your grandchildren something, and by your dying day, I will teach you something. Like, God's got a plan, a bigger plan. That's why the verse that we read in verse... Chapter 29, 11, for I know the plans, plans. God operates from a plan, like He operates from a plan. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, maybe not the one that you drew up, but the one that I got for you. God is good. The first thing we need to remember is God operates from a plan. The second thing we need to know is God seeks our welfare. But to know that God is good, like I mentioned, it takes understanding that experience of suffering, of being in Babylon, because there's a a psalm, Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good this is one of those things that cannot be experienced secondhand. Like, God is good. Like It can't be like my mom, my dad, they were faithful Christians. They served the Lord. I remember them doing so much in in service and in honor to God. But I cannot experience the goodness of God through them. I might be able to get a few little glimpses, a little cheat notes here and there, but like in order to truly know that God is good, I need to taste it. Like, how do you, if you've never tasted durian fruit, like you, like, I don't know. There's nothing that I can tell you that it tastes like that will equate to you sinking your teeth and letting those nostrils fill with durian. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And there is something about, no, not equating durian to God's goodness. I, that's a, I don't know, that would be little weird. But you get what I'm saying, right? If we want to know and confess with truth in our life, God, I know you are good. It is something that I must taste and I must see. And it takes me being in Babylon. It takes me understanding that 70 years to the Lord is not really that long. It takes me understanding that this season doesn't define my life. This blur that I feel, wait a minute there's going to be a focal point somewhere because God's operating from a plan and He cares for me deeply. Like if those two truths set into your life, I'm telling you, we can we can shoulder devastation, the greatest losses of life, and we can still be praising God on the other end. And so I hope these two truths get with you. As our praise team comes back, I'm going to finish with You know, this message got me thinking about something that I posted on social media um, a little less than a year ago. And it was on the tail end of a short family trip that we took to Palm Springs. It was during Thanksgiving of 2017. And Southern California, it's odd, we have like two seasons, right? We got or like one and a half type thing, right? It's not like other parts of the world where they got that distinct four seasons. And uh, so even in late November, we were confident we can get to Palm Springs and we could take the kids there. They can still go swimming. And it was the weather cooperated. It was great. The kids spent the better part of two days by the pool, right? And it was fun. Right? It, was, it was sunny. It wasn't 90 degrees like it is right now, but it was good. And I vividly remember on the drive home, the weather took a turn, right? I mean, it drastically took. Oh, we're driving home darkness set in, right? And it started to pound and rain as we were driving back home. The first thing that I said is, wow, God, thank you that it wasn't like this while we were actually over here, right? But that got me thinking. And I I wrote it for you in the pastor's note. It was late November, and we were in Palm Springs for a short family Thanksgiving getaway. It was just warm enough to spend most of both days by the pool, and the kids had so much fun. But on the drive back home, the weather took a quick turn as the dark clouds rolled in and the rain started to pour. And the most impactful aspect of the weather was not the moisture, but the drastic drop in temperature. It was cold. Dark clouds have that much influence over the temperature. This got me thinking about the metaphorical clouds in our lives and how they affect our mood and our hope. For when the emotional temperature drops, so does our joy and motivation. And so let's remember that the distance of the sun didn't change, for it is more permanent than the clouds. But too often, our life's satisfaction is misplaced because we let the clouds dictate how we feel and then ultimately what we do. And that post on social media was accompanied by this picture. And I want us to know, the sun didn't go anywhere. Like darkness, (laughs) right? Clouds, temperature dropping, rain pounding. And in moments like this, we're not thinking about the sun that's still shining ever so brightly right above. We began to fixate a few tears lower than that. What's happening in the moment? And we're like, man, I just don't know about this. I'm not happy with my life anymore. I don't like my career anymore. I don't like my family anymore. I don't like all of this. Because all we feel is the temperature right then, and we judge our life based on temperature, how we feel right then and there, with the loss that we felt, experience. And it takes a bigger person to look beyond the clouds and say, the sun didn't go anywhere. It's still there. Jesus is still shining. God is still faithful. He's still in control, and He still has my interest in His heart sun's not gone. sun's not gone. And that's what I hope to instill in your lives today. If this is the season of Babylon for you, the sun's not gone. If this is a like, sunny day for you, I guarantee you it's going to feel like Babylon. I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Like, uh, it'll come. It'll come. Babylon's on its way. Right? If that discourages you, I'm sorry. But hopefully it prepares you. Because there's two rails that you need to set, set your train on, your life on. And it'll take you through the densest fog. It'll be there, faithful. and It'll bring you to your destination. And at the end, God will say, I had this, I had this in mind the whole time. Amen.